Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. It is the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk this week, and the initial plan for this week was for us to do a show entirely about books. We try to do that about this time of the year and have a good chat about sort of you know books that you could read around the pool, watching the uh, sort of taking it easy over the summer. Uh, and we have got some authors coming up. We're going to be joined by Daniel Fieldsend, uh, Mark Douglas, and by Michael Calvin uh, to talk about their books. Um, you know, which all sound very good indeed. But what I decided we had to do in this week was to talk about Liverpool's. Shocking, uh, shocking, overstating it, surprising statements on the website uh, about Virgil van Dijk and that transfer seemingly collapsing. I'm joined for this part of the show by John Gibbons before we get stuck into the books. And John, it's it's shocking is is an overstatement, but it's the sort of thing which is unprecedented and which doesn't really reflect anyone at the club in a good light. Yeah, it is very unprecedented, and I think that was why it was a bit of a surprise because, you know, how often do you see a club do that? It's hardly ever. Um, I mean, we as a, as a football club seem to make quite a lot of, of statements regarding transfers in the summer and lessons kind of don't seem to be learned really and it makes you kind of look at the club in a bit more detail and think, well, who's who's making decisions? Who's making decisions based on strategy? Who's making decisions based on, you know, how we go about getting a player and how we go about getting it on the line and, and kind of what experience did you have really? And you look around at Liverpool and... and this kind of highlights that it did just seem a little bit short in certain areas to me. You know, Jan Klopp's a fantastic football manager and he's obviously decided that it, it would be a good idea for him to speak to the player directly. And we've heard that work in the past. You know, you, Fernando Torres gets the phone call on the beach and it's, and it's Rafa Benitez yeah. and he doesn't believe it and things like that. So nothing particularly new in, in terms of certain aspects, but something's gone badly wrong somewhere. And at, at some point, the football club, a football club's just gone, this isn't cricket. And and you, you feel like you're looking at it going, it, you know, it needs someone to go, well, actually, you know, can we can we do the, you know, we need to be kind of careful with this and, and doesn't seem to be any thought of that gone in. And, and just kind of throwing our weight around in a way that we, we, we're not quite entitled to you. Do you know what I mean? We, yeah. we feel like we're we're back in the Champions League. That's great. But we're not we're not quite Real Madrid. You feel like you, you just do whatever they want. You know what I mean? I mean, they got a transfer ban. <laughs> but, but, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I think that's... I, I can't, um, you know, I can't think what it is that they must have that's different from lots of other things. But there must be something and there's something that's significant enough for Liverpool to behave the way in which they have. And I just, I just think it's a ridiculous shame in that what it's done is, as you say, what it turns into is people worrying about what's going on at the football club more and wanting to 
know more about what's going on behind the scenes and know more about who's doing what. And what doesn't happen, what doesn't help is that they've given this transfer committee thing a name in the past. You know the individuals on, and they're not very. You know they they, they very rarely, if ever, speak in public, uh, which doesn't help in terms of garnering goodwill or anything like that. And so you just left sort of wondering and thinking to yourselves, well. Is this just a complete lack of competence, lads? And this is that's something that's a real shame off the back of the, the the general sort of upbeat nature of the summer, the ideal nature of the summer after qualifying for the Champions League and then beating City and Chelsea seemingly to the signature of Virgil Van Dijk. Yeah, it's it it is a real frustrating one, and as you say, it makes you kind of look at the football club. and And ever since FSG have come in, there's a, there's a, there's a famous saying, isn't there? Where if you if you if you don't know something about subjects surround yourself with people who do. Um, but the problem is, if you don't know enough about it, then how do you know the people who are bluffing you and the people who are really knowledgeable? And FSG been caught out a few times over the years with, with people who were the former rather than the latter, really. And I think it also feels like a football club that if you face fits, you can get promoted very quickly. And this is all leading me on to Michael Edwards, who we don't know very little about because he tells us very little about about himself, so so you're having to kind of fill in the gaps a little bit. Um, he's a, he's someone who has gathered the reputation as being someone who's quite good at analysing football, football as using statistics. His his record on that, I'd say, is indifferent. But I do, kind of don't really want to talk about that. I don't really want to talk about you know how good a signing signing Coutinho wasn't, how good a signing Balotelli wasn't. You know, if if that's what he's good at, then sound. If he's really really good at it, give him some more money. How how we've ended up in a situation where he's now negotiating on transfers because he's good at looking at some numbers on a on a on a computer and, and, and seeing how much someone's worth. If he's I don't I don't understand how that happens and it feels like, you know, if at Liverpool if someone thinks you're alright, then then bloody hell you go far. And and I don't really understand how how that can happen and so and I think for you know fair enough if 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 you had an ownership who who really really knew the football and thought he's he's a real bright talent and, and that's something then then that's fine but there's I don't see who's who 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 it, there is to make these decisions to rapidly accelerate these people who who don't have any experience you know if if FSG have nothing to go on then it should be well he he's done that job somewhere else really really well and it wouldn't happen in any other industry I don't think that you'd have someone you know at the top of the you know one of the top ten teams in the in the world at what they do suddenly just just giving some someone a go at a really important job because they quite like them and they're I, good at another job. Yeah, I think but I think again this what what doesn't help in this is the fact that again you've it's it's all done shrouded in darkness and it's all done where this the, the people these people don't speak or if they do speak they don't speak very often. You know, you've got um you, you know Michael Gordon, uh, you've got Michael Gordon and you've got you've got Mike Edwards here and neither of them are just aren't prominent in terms of, you know, what, who they are as people and sort of giving you some insight into what it is that does qualify them and all that'd be fine if it was going swimmingly. At which point you can go, well, you know, the proof of the, the proof of the puddings in the eating, and it's all just yeah. sort of going swimmingly all the time. Whereas it's not. Um, it, it, it clearly isn't. Liverpool had a good summer last summer, and people should be should be impressed with that, and should be you know should should think that they've done a good job there. But it does seem as though when the pressures come back on here, they have fallen short. And and I'd love not to have to think about this stuff. And I think that's sort of what you're saying as well. You'd love to sort of be able to go. Well, let's just let the let's just let the, let them get on with that, and we just get on with paying through the gates and just yeah. watching the football team and just going from there. When you have to make statements like that on your official website, not even, that, that you can't even do them privately, but when they've got to be that sort of that that blatant, that's when you've got a problem. Yeah, because. And it's and for Michael Edwards, it's his first summer in a new job and the first transfer, you know, first proper transfer. You know, they've managed to persuade Solanke. Okay, great. He, he looks a decent young player, but the first proper transfer, the one they've really gone at to, and it's. 
And it's another moment where it feels like that the managers end up getting hung to dry a little bit as well. And that's been something that's happened quite a lot under FSG as well. You look at the, you know, Kenny Dagalee show over the Suarez stuff and you can say that some of his actions are misguided, but, you know, he was a football manager who, and Kenny Dagalee will always have Liverpool's back. It's, it's one of the most wonderful things about him. And, but where was anyone else going? Do you know what, Kenny, maybe we shouldn't do that or maybe we should approach this in a different way, you know? And, and it felt like that, you know, Rogers felt like he was, he was the, the, the spokesman for for the whole football club sometimes when you know he, he probably would have been better off as a young manager just coaching a bit and and so it it, it could be kind of a bit frustrating really that that you know there aren't there aren't sh- more strong individuals within the football club who are kind of willing to take take things on. You know, I, I feel a bit sorry for Peter Moore because he's just come in. He probably feels like he, he won't mind getting his feet under the desk for a bit and then he's yeah. suddenly got this to deal with that, that kind of isn't really kind of anything to do with him. And so it's just a real mess. Look, and look, we might end up still having a good summer. Um, you know, we, we shouldn't... Yeah, there's every chance. Every, chance. every chance, you know, we might buy... A, I don't think we'll get Van Dijk now, but you know we will buy a centre half, and maybe he'll turn out to be a better player. Maybe he'll do really well. You kind of don't know, you know. You just have to kind of wait and see. But it's frustrating, and it's it's a little bit amateurish as well, and and that's kind of annoying when there was so much kind of positivity around the football club, you know, in terms of how we finished the season, you know, having fun going over to Australia and things like that, and then everyone was going off on holiday, and you think, well, we're getting linked with some good players here, and then it's just another little kind of thing where you start to doubt what the direction the football club's going. Okay, this is the Anfield app on Radio City Talk. Just wanted to cover that. Uh, we're going to go to a break now, but when we come back, uh, we're going to be talking to Mark Douglas, and then, as I say, we've got more excellent interviews around books to come, uh, and more and more coverage of what's going on with Virgil van Dijk on the theanfieldapp.com. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Anfield app on Radio City Talk. I'm really pleased to have, have someone from the city uh, who's written a fabulous book called The European Game, The Secrets of European Football Success. It's uh, Dan Fieldsend and Dan... Let's start with start with your story a little bit. Really, it's that you you know you've 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 you're a UEFA qualified coach. You've scouted for for Liverpool. You've been working in the football industry, and then you decided to go and go around Europe's premier training training grounds and and write down what you learnt about the way in which they go about their business. Yeah, that was always just a a personal indulgence of sorts. I always wanted to travel around and visit these clubs. So what we have in England, it's the global league. It is. If you look at Liverpool's youth academy. Alex Inglethorpe's in charge, he's a brilliant, inspirational fella. And he studied his thesis on Ajax in the Dutch way. Yeah. And then you've got Pep Linders, who's that bridge. Yeah. We've got him from Porto. You know, he's well-versed in the Portuguese way of doing things. And obviously we've got Jürgen Klopp, a German manager. But it's not just Liverpool, all clubs in the Premier League are like that. That's a real globalised league. And what I wanted to investigate was, with these clubs where we're getting these guys from, did they still keep their cultural uniqueness? Or was football continental-wise... You know, an amalgamation of sameness. Well, you've ended up, you've ended up going to Ajax, Juventus, Benfica, Bayern Munich, AC Milan, Leon, Atletico, Bilbao, plus others, mm. and had a good look around. And I'm not going to ask you to go, well, what was the answer? But did you notice sort of quite disparate sort of cultural factors in play? Yeah, what I found was there's this term psychogeography, and it's how a place and the people shape institutions within that environment. So if we use Athletic Bilbao as an example, you know about the Cantera policy yeah. that they've got there. So for people who don't know, every player who plays for Athletic Bilbao has to have ties to a localised Basque region. So if we put it in the context of Liverpool, you know, it's having a Scouts eleven, yeah, which is the dream, of course. But things like that, them, them kinds of cultural traits um, are really quite... What should, I'm trying to think of the way to describe it. They've attained, they're utilised... They become embedded in the yeah. way the club wants to do what it wants to do. Yeah. And what, what we have here, 
we have very um, we have disparities in the styles that are used at different Premier League clubs. Whereas on the continent, it's it's kind of like national schools of thought. You have the Dutch way, you know. You have the Spanish way, the German way, the Portuguese way, and you look at the successful nations. You know, they they do retain that identity. Whereas in England, Premier League clubs with various agendas and what have you. It doesn't reflect the national team. Is there, you mentioned there, I mean, a book I've always loved, and I think you've cited it here, and you're getting towards it as well, David Winner's Brilliant Orange on yeah. Dutch football and how how it is like this this whole mentality, almost setting neuroses feed in. And you mentioned geography as well. Geography, he cites, he cites that idea of psychic geography in there. And then you mentioned that it didn't happen, it doesn't happen in the same way in England. And I've always been fascinated by this as to why that's never quite happened. And... I, I wonder if it's because, you know, when, when English football was predominant in the continent from, say, 75 to 85, there wasn't the same sort of... It wasn't at the heart of the national sort of game and the national consciousness. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like this is this is everything. So what Paisley and Clough and Greenwood were all doing just sort of became, oh, well, it's just a bit of footy. Whereas, you know, you look at, you look abroad and you mention Bilbao, it's, it's at the centre of the culture. And mm. you mentioned Porto, it's at the centre of the culture. Is that what you found as well? It's, it's everywhere you go. And we get that in Liverpool, but across the rest of England, that's often just not the case. Yeah. Um, I'm 1990-born, so I wasn't alive in the Greenwood days. Um, it was my generation that kind of watched the sunset on mystery in football in the sense that, you know, we used to look abroad and you'd look at names like Bayern Munich and Ajax. And there was that kind of mystery associated with them, which my generations watched that fade. Um, in regards to what you're saying there, though, yes, if you go Bilbao, for example, you go to Bilbao and there are athletic flags hanging from every washing line and balcony, yeah. and it's that, it's that cup final atmosphere. But that's all year round, you know, and it, it is like that throughout most of Europe. Um, yeah, you, you're definitely touching on something there. And you've within the book you've you've got, you've got a fair few Liverpool connections. You've um, I mean and interesting stuff at the moment. I noticed you do a, a little bit on Red Bull Leipzig, which is interesting at the moment when people talk about Naby Keita. Mm. You've got bits in there with Xabi Alonso knocking around as well. It's you know it, it's it, it there's there's something to grab people in here. Yeah, it relates to Liverpool a few times. Um, when I went to Milan, I met with Filippo Galli, who's this incredible man. You know he's won three European cups. He played with Baresi, Maldini. He's royalty in football. And he says to me, so you, you're scouts, you're from Liverpool? I say, yeah. He says, I can't explain to you how much I love Liverpool FC. He said, it's in my veins. And I'm looking at this man thinking, oh my God, you know, you've won everything. And he goes on and within seven seconds, he's named everyone who started that 84 Cup final. He's going, grobble our kneel, and he's just listing through them. And obviously, when, you, when you're within Liverpool, you know how big the club is, you know, because it's overwhelming. But it's only when you travel around... And you're sitting in places like Prague and what have you, and people just want to talk about Liverpool Football Club. It's when you come to realise how actually massive the club is. You know, you said Zabi Alonso was well there. Um, so I went to Sabre Stras, which is their training ground, which is like this most unbelievably liberal place in that. The you fans, just walk around, can't you? You just walk around, the fans grab... You've been, haven't you? Uh, the, John, John, John and Andy went to speak, to, right. to speak to Shabby and, and he couldn't believe that the, how laid back the training ground was. Yeah, you just grab a Beffy and the fans are all stood there. Which you can't imagine happening here in any any Premier League team, um, and stood there and obviously get a little bit excited. I shout down to Zabi Alonso. I shout, Zabi, are you coming back to Liverpool? Obviously not knowing he was about to retire, and uh, the fans are laughing. He walks down and he comes up and he says, "I recognise that accent, lad." And I'm thinking, <laughs> "Oh, Zabi, <laughs> he's got, he got you there." <laughs> yeah, you magnificent man. 
Um, right the way through, you'd also do a lot of work on uh, on Rayo as well, which is dead interesting. I mean, you didn't just pick, you didn't pick the obvious clubs, and it is, you know, it seems quite clear from from talking to you separately and also from 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 what's in the book that you were looking for culturally interesting things. It wasn't just mm-hmm. the idea of what how many super clubs can we cram in here, how many European institutions can we cram in. You know, you spend a lot of time in the book sort of dwelling on on, on sides like Rayo and and Red Bull Leipzig and mm-hmm. things like that. It's you you're trying to track the pathways going forward in football, not just sort of looking at how these clubs have got to where they are. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if if I was to just visit all of the, just put Juventus, just put Bayern Munich. I mean, they're in there as well. But for points of comparison, there's Budapest Honved in there, you know, who are historically this great team. But with the fall of communism and football there is really, well, disintegrated. Um, and they are, they're a good point in comparison, you know. There's other teams as well. There's Austria-Vienna. And then you go from Austria-Vienna to Bayern Munich and you can compare the methods that they use at one club, how they transfer to other clubs, you know. And in there as well, I mean, he keeps coming back in, in lots of different things that, I, that I've been reading at the minute is Ragnik. Yeah. You spend a lot of time working sort of and I'm wondering about what Ragnik's influence in general in, in German football. And he seems to be a figure who, you know, a lot of people, a lot of, he comes up in Das Reboot by uh, Raphael Honigstein as well. He's, he's a figure that, 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 that grabs a lot of the sort of the German consciousness around the game at the moment. Yeah, um, he's a, quite, quite a pioneer, to be honest. I spoke to several guys and he said he, he appeared on television the late 90s and he's got a tactics board and he's talking about tactics and the fans were in uproar in Germany you know and they're saying football's such a simple game why are you trying to make it like this mm. which is there's a lot of parallels there with what it used to be like in England a few years back obviously I think Gary Neville's came in and he's revolutionised consciousness a little bit um, but Ralf Ragnick did that in Germany and he, he, people might not know about his managerial career but what he's been doing at Red Bull the, the rise there, you could attribute it all down to him, most definitely. Okay, um, so the book is out now, and it is on, uh, it is, I'm trying to just sort of, it's Arena Sport, it's available on, out on Amazon. Uh, Amazon Waterstones, yeah. Yeah, uh, out on Amazon, published on the 8th of June, so as you're listening to this, it will be out and available. Amazon Waterstones, all the obvious places, the European game by Daniel Fieldsend. Uh, this is the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk. Thank you very much for Daniel for coming in. And we will, uh, we will step over and get ourselves involved in yet another book. Just trying to box off your summer reading around the pool. That's all I'm trying to do <laughs> for you, you know. You know, a guy who gives his heart and soul to a, to a football club and he's done that in Newcastle. And I think people of, of Newcastle have kind of appreciated that. And it's, yeah, it's been really, uh, it's been a really kind of uplifting season at Newcastle. I think Rafa's got to take so much of the credit for that. Well, we'll come on to the season as a whole in a second, but just that sort of start that you, you know, where you start from there, it, it is that feeling of that, you know, Benitez himself, you feel as though he needs to feel as though he needs to, he wants to feel a sense of belonging that he is, his understanding of football, I think is it's because of the, the, the disparate nature of his character that he, that he's so in many ways, you know, he's so single minded about the game of football on the one hand and that, that, that he's, he's notoriously or, or, or reputed to be colder with players than many managers and all of that sort of stuff on the one hand. But on the other hand, he, he does come across very much as a man who, who feels the character and the culture of football really quite keenly. There was, you know, that's before he came to live 
Liverpool, he was crying at his press conference leaving Valencia. Mm. You know, there's, there's been images of him in tears at, uh, at, 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 at a service to do with uh, Hillsborough at Liverpool. That he's, he's he, you know, he's he's got these two sides to him. One's deeply and intensely emotional. And maybe that partially explains why this, there's this other side to him that almost tries to block all that out and instead is very analytical. And he does need that, doesn't he? He needs to feed both sides of that of that personality. Absolutely, yeah, that is absolutely spot on. We, we kind of chatted about it at the end of the season where there was, you know, the final day of the season in Newcastle and it, and it was, you know, it was a really kind of a, you saw an emotional side to Rafa in the final two games that you maybe hadn't seen um, since January when things had got a little bit tense and I think you could see that that kind of icy sort of side, you know, the quite, um, you know, the quite ruthless side of Rafa sort of came out between January and about March. But at the end of the season, you saw this really emotional side of Rafa. And we kind of sat down for a drink at the end of the season. And we said, what's really interesting with Rafa is, I mean, especially in Newcastle this season, he has been quite emotional. I think he's, I think he's actually a warm character towards the players. I mean, he's always, he was very warm, I know, uh, towards the, the supporters. And there was that real bond with the supporters of Liverpool from the start. I think that was always there. But I think the players will tell you he's, he's a warmer character. He's kind of a funnier um, yeah. kind of character than he was maybe when he was at Liverpool. But... The football is actually quite cold and, uh, and, and calculating when it needs to be. Uh, Newcastle had some injuries in, uh, in kind of, you know, in the, uh, the heart of the winter. And we saw for Rafa, he, he really made the team quite functional. Yeah, they were quite direct. They, were, um, they played to their strengths. And I think, he got, I think he got a bit of criticism at the time from a lot of other supporters in the championships. Were saying, oh, you know, you've got all these. But, but Rafa knows, you know, there's that kind of, there's this, theme that's gone through the season that we've not had in Newcastle for so long and people just basically say look Rafa knows don't worry about it he's got it um, he knows what he's doing and, and, and you know what's been really interesting what I can try to get across in the book was you know when people say Rafa knows it's not this kind of face this blind you've got in the guy it's, it's a guy who didn't take a holiday last summer he has not taken a holiday this summer either but the amount of hours that he puts into it and his backroom team put into it um, you kind of feel like he can be emotional because He's done the hard work. You know, he doesn't need... The, the reason the fans have so much emotion for him is they feel that he cares about that football club as much as they do. Yeah. And it was the same at Liverpool because you knew that. You knew when, when he was at Liverpool. Um, the reason why maybe sometimes, you know, people kind of um, from the outside didn't like him because he was going into bat that football club more than anybody else. He, he kind of felt it like a supporter. He doesn't, you know, he wasn't as knee-jerk as fan, but he felt it. And we get that feeling in Newcastle and you, and you see it. Um, from time and time again, the things that he says and the things that he does um, when he's at a football club that really cares about him, he gets to bat for that football club and he gives everything, you know. I mean, he, he does a day's I, work. I mean, you know, it sounds, it sounds like a trite thing to say, but, you know, I think that cities like Liverpool and Newcastle respect, you know, respect people who are committed to a cause and who do a day, a full, a proper day's work and not just one day's work, but in the case of Benitez, you're right to point out, you know, this is a man who will gladly go without a holiday if he thinks it's going to help his football club succeed. Completely, yeah. I mean, what was what I found really, really interesting with Rafa was the, the kind of the scope of the amount of work that he put in, you know. And he didn't feel like, I mean, he's got this obsessiveness um, about him that, that is really kind of fascinating. And we found in press conferences, I sort of go into it a little bit in the book, um, you know, he, he, he kind of, we have Alan Pardew before, who, you know, Alan Pardew is a, you know, not a bad manager. I mean, I didn't think, you know, yeah. warm to him that much. But I think with Alan Pardew, you know, it wasn't that he did, he wasn't working hard, but I got the impression with Alan Pardew, he was doing things deliberately. He was doing things to kind of come across as if uh, things were a certain way. So he was saying things, 
in order to try and win the fans round with Rafa. With Rafa, there's this authenticity there. You know, in January, when it looked as if you know people were worried about was he going to walk out, the stuff that he was saying came from a position where you know you knew that he's he's a very authentic guy, and when you know when he says something, the fans listen to him at Newcastle because they know he's the first person who's come in and. You know, at the end of the season, we know he would have walked away if he hadn't got what he wanted. And the fact that he's that he's that he's got that um, I don't know what I don't know what the best way to I think authority is the is the is the right yeah. way to say it. But because you know he does he, he does everything he he doesn't expect any player to do something that he wouldn't do. You know, the guy's coming in at seven o'clock. He's I mean, in the course of the book, we kind of detail the fact that he, he um, you know in the evening like he, he was asked at one point you know well you know why don't why don't you go home before tech? He's like, well my family are all in in the Wirral and there's games I want to watch on TV so I just <laughs> sit in the training ground and watch these games. And you're sort of thinking this is a guy who's like you know he's like well when I lived in Liverpool you know I had to go I had to go home and I had to take my work home with me but here you know my family are here. I could just work at the training ground until ten o'clock and you're thinking to him it's just normal yeah um, and you have to have so much admiration for a guy like that because. You know, I say at the end, he handled it really well. But at the end, I talk about the impact of what would have happened if Newcastle hadn't got. He felt that, you know, he knew. He was in the meetings at the start of the season where um, they said, look, you know, the football club, if we don't go up, we're, we're kind of putting a lot of money into this, staying up. You know, we're growing a, a, the largest wage bill in the championship history. And Rafa, you know, he, he wasn't just doing it for his own good. He was doing it because he knew that if Newcastle didn't go up this season, they would have been in a lot of trouble and the football club would have gone down a kind of very different route next season. I think at the end of the season, he celebrated so much in Newcastle because he knew he was, he was doing something for that football club. It was, it was about if we fail, it's not my CV look bad. It's I've taken, these people have taken me to the heart. I will have failed them. A football club will go through a bad, a bad patch because of what I've done. And I just appreciated that with Rafa. And I think a lot of the fans did that, you know, he wasn't doing it for himself. It wasn't about his CV. It was about, you know, signing up to the project and following it through. Well, on on that then, there's the, you know, getting towards the end of the season, there's one game that stands out for me in my mind because I watched it live and I saw a few Newcastle games live last season, but the one that stands out is that, that away game of Brighton and Hove Albion. And before I let you go, uh, Mark, I just, you know, looking at that game, to me it was it was both the, the strengths of Benitez in a weird little way, an odd, an odd weakness. It showed the fickleness of football with the crazy equalising goal. Yeah. But it was a game where, you know, in an intense run of fixtures at that time, I think Newcastle had just got themselves a result against Huddersfield or had Huddersfield next uh, and they'd had Bristol they'd, Bristol City around the same time who we were in a good place then but they, they got the results away at Huddersfield in a way of Brighton back to back and I just sort of remember feeling that was remarkably Benitez and that Brighton game you know Newcastle deserved all three points forget the nature of the equalising goal Newcastle spent the 90 minutes looked the superior side to me for, for almost all points of the game and it showed didn't it the, the quality of the Newcastle side and you know the end up on the final day Getting the championship, but the, you know the, the the there was a strength and depth there, and a work ethic and a plan that deserved all of that, and I'm sure that comes over in the book. Yeah, completely. I think what's really interesting is that uh, we, you know, we, we saw from it that everything that he did at the start of the season was to kind of put in place these little building blocks to to improve the mentality of the players. And you know, we we got through previous two seasons at Newcastle where they, they hadn't won they, they won a way game. In the maybe two or three. Yeah. Um, and, and, and regularly, I think the thing that he felt needed to be practiced was a mentality thing. He talks, there's a great quote from him where he says, where he's asked why, you know, they, they were better at him. And basically, you know, 
any team can run, any team can sort of, you know, we can set up any team, every team, in, even in our division, especially in the Premier League, has quality. But it was the mentality that he wanted. And I think at Brighton, what was really interesting, he came up with a game plan, but they kept going. And it was 89 minutes where Ali Perez saw that goal. And previous Newcastle teams wouldn't have been able to do that. They would have come back from one behind for a start. Um, and then they wouldn't have kept going. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have kept going and kept following the plan of the manager. You know, you saw especially in the Huddersfield game, I think even, even more so, they had plan. You know, good players like your John Joe Shelby's, um, your kind of Isaac Haynes, um, you, you kind of, even your Dwight Gales, they were prepared to kind of give up their own glory uh, to play into this kind of Rafa Benitez game plan, which you would have seen in Liverpool. Yeah. How many way nights in Europe did you have in Liverpool where really good players were sort of doing their bit for the team? And it was almost like, you know, everybody talks about Istanbul, but that was a triumph of a team that collectively was way better than the sum of its parts. And I think we saw that with Newcastle at times last season where people thought that individually they were really, really good. But actually, towards the end of the season, they had to be collectively really, really good. And that's what Raffle was all about. You know, that's what, uh, and that's the book's kind of a little bit about. You see in the summary, you know, he brings in players who've got, you know, really good backstories, guys like, Matt Ritchie went to play at Dagenham, played at Portsmouth, played at these games, and came through the ranks. And Dwight Gale played at Bishop Stortford when he was a kid, you know, going on the back of the bus to uh, Harrogate when he was uh, doing kind of, you know, he's a part-time uh, carpenter as well. And you've got these guys who, you know, they, they, they can't believe they're working with Rafa Benitez, even though they kind of had their own, you know, great careers themselves. And I think it was just such a good mix that he saw that Rafa sort of saw that he needed good characters, but he also needed them to be able to um, to have the ability to kind of want to work with him and to know that look, we're Newcastle United in the Championship. Everybody expects us to walk through this division. It's not going to be that easy. You've got to you've got to be prepared to do the hard work. I'm prepared to do the hard work. You know, he says in the book, you know, I'm, I, I approached kind of Burton like I did Barcelona because yeah. you know if you if you think you're too good for Burton, then they will beat you. And it was kind of like. You know, you sort of thought, this is so refreshing from a guy who's probably got the best CV of any manager in uh, in the championship and certainly, you know, almost as good as most in the Premier League as well. So, you know, it was a really uplifting scene. It's been great to be able to kind of write the book and give it a bit of a, you know, give it a bit of a, a, an uplifting sort of positive end as well because we haven't had many of them in Newcastle. <laughs> well, well, Mark, thank you so much for coming on talking about it. So it's called Inside the Revolution. It's on Sport Media. We'll tweet out links yep. and things. It's out on the six, on June the fifteenth, uh, but you can yep. pre-order it now on Amazon, and it's ten pounds at the moment. Uh, and so yep. you can get you can get hold of a copy of that Inside the Revolution with Mark Douglas. This is the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk. We're going to give you more books to read by the beach in a second. Don't go anywhere. Yes, ironically enough, now we're looking football leads um, European scout at Nor- Norwich City. I remember him going through the system, and he was bright enough at 16 to know he wasn't quite going to make, make it. You know, he, he did everything, he kept in accounting and all that stuff, but wasn't quite good enough. Went into coaching, did his degree in, in, in performance analysis, and went from there. Most kids are still um, sort of tied into that dream, and uh, it's very difficult to watch them come to terms with, with failure. So, for instance, with my son, the thing that struck, always stayed with me was one night, it was a, a, a Thursday night, and uh, it was, it was in the under-14s there at Lead to Academy, um, and one of the boys from his group was released on that particular night. And we happened to walk across the car park, and I saw the father and son in the car. The father was in the front seat, and he was obviously animated and quite angry. And the boy was in the back seat, 
looking out uh, of the window, and his face was frozen in this silent scream, and it, oh, it stayed with me. And um, that's probably why that image has driven me to, to try and get beneath the skin of, of what is a, a huge issue. Well, I mean, I just there's the there's the the general issue, and we'll maybe come on to that with the, the nature of the money now and the impact of mm. of the grandiosity, but also just just simple stuff around. You know, I think it's you've got Tony McCool in there who at one point sort of refers says, you know, the way you're talking to that child is horrendous, and mm. he goes on to detail this story of of the of of a, of a side he was working with playing in Belgium, and and, and basically he gets you know he, he just gets undone a little bit. This lad playing left back, he plays the ball into midfield. They nick it, uh, they've seen it coming. The clever footballers, they nick it, they've done it, uh, they've and they go on and they score and the coach screams at him over and over again get off the pitch get off the pitch get off the pitch and just completely demolishes this child this left back and a lot of so many of the stories that you've you've, you've got in there the tales of this is you know that the, the intent that the fact that these these were, were putting effectively children through i think we all accept that football clubs are to some degree an emotional hothouse but we're putting children through these emotional emotional hothouses and when i read that that just that anecdote within the book it really stayed with me to be honest with you mike and i was you know just thinking what a what a terrible thing to go through that this lad who wasn't going to almost certainly not going to be kept on anyway I, th- I think tony says but that he yeah. has that experience and he has to take that away with him for the rest of his life, just demolishes him. Well, you know, several, several things in that, Neil. The, the first is that one of the things that that coach screamed was, get off my pitch. Yeah. How about that for, for arrogance and, um, and just sheer destructiveness? Um, Tony went to see that boy who was sobbing behind the goal. You know, there's another um, aspect of the book where I, I look at a, a boy... Um, uh, called Kieran Bywater, who'd been released very unexpectedly by um, West Ham, had been their academy player of the year, he was captain in the under 21s, 23s, just came out of nowhere. And he went to about seven different clubs on trial. And in the end, he just broke down, almost had a nervous breakdown, and he walked off the pitch after 15 minutes saying, I can't do this anymore. And two weeks ago, I was playing against PSV Eindhoven. Now here am I on this park pitch trying to uh, impress some, some guys from a League Two club. Just couldn't handle it. Now there's a happy ending to that story because he um, became involved. Uh, there's a, an organisation called the Plus Trust which offer independent uh, advice, confidential advice to parents and children. Uh, and they fixed him up and he's going at college in the States doing very, very well and you know has got ambitions of getting into the MLS. So you know that's the, that's the happiness. I think, as I said, that what, I, what what I was driven by with this was the simple question, really: What's the game doing to our kids? And is it worth the fractured families that you see, the blighted lives? And does football fulfil its duty of care? You know, not just to the vulnerable children, but also to their parents who've got every right to be concerned because you know they go into it with unconditional love, and sometimes that that can spill over in dangerous areas because I, I do I have seen parents living their lives vicariously through their kids' development of football. But, you know, the numbers are are just so daunting yeah. that you look at it, you know, the, 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 the stat that I, I use most of all from the book is that only 180 of the one and a half million boys who play organised football, youth football, at any one time in England 
will become a Premier League pro. Now, the success rate of that is 0.012%, which is pretty much the, you know, the, you know, the chances of you getting hit by a meteorite next time you're walking down Anfield Road. You know, it's just it's it's infinitesimal. Um, you know, less than one percent of the boys who enter an academy at the age of nine will make it or make a living from the game. Now, that's semi-upwards. So the dropout rate is terrifying, and that begs another massive question, which is who picks up the pieces? And it's all very well to say from an adult perspective, oh, well, you know, at least you've had a good shot at it, um, you know, you've, you've had good coaching, uh, but, kids, you know, failure is part of life. You know, it's, it's a ruthless world. Well, that's looking at it from an adult perspective. Let's turn it around on its head. Look at it from a child. That child has had that dream developed from the age of six. In fact, it's happening earlier now. If you take, take as an example, there's a race to the bottom going on where you've got kids three and four years old being approached by scouts. To give you another example, there was a lad called Jackson Lau, who was, who was um, uh, in Manchester. His mum uh, posted a YouTube video of him kicking a football around in his back garden with his five-year-old brother. Next thing you know, they get a knock on the door from Manchester City Scout. Next thing you know, he's in the Manchester Evening News. He's posing with his... Uh, he's got a Messi shirt on, a Barcelona shirt, which basically reaches past his knees. It's just an absurd spectacle. It's absurd because Jason Lau is three years old. Now, and his mum's, um, you know, parroting on about, oh, you know, I really hope both he and his brother uh, uh, make it as professional footballers at three years old. Where are we going with that? You've got six-year-olds being released from academies, and I quote here, for picking up bad habits. You've got 11-year-olds who basically are told they're failures. Um, you've got some kids who are detached from their home environment, so they, you know, they might sign for a, a Premier League academy, um, they'll a relocation package, they turn up. Now, it might be that in fact, the probability is that you know, when they're 13, 14, that will be it. They'll be released. Then, what do they do then? They go back to where they came from. And, I, you know, I've, I've spoken to parents and, and kids. When they're released from a football club, it was, there, is a, there is such a level of um, almost glee that they hadn't made it. You know, oh, you used, you used to be at City, United, Liverpool, Everton, wherever it is. You used to be. So, in other words, you're telling a 13-year-old, well, I'm sorry, son, but your future is behind you. Now, you know, what effect does that have? And I, I just think that there are some really good coaches out there, some enlightened strategies being pursued. But bottom line is that football basically treat young boys as if they're tender pieces of and and I, I can't stand that. It's... It's right the way through. You, you, I think you, as to get towards the end of the book, you begin to close on the the. I think it's the England under under seventeen side, and there, mm. for instance, I mean that that you just to give it a bit of sort of contemporary resonance there. You mentioned uh, Solanke, Liverpool's new sign, and you mentioned Joe yeah. Gomez for that matter. You know, but what yeah. one of the things that struck me with that was on Solanke. What you actually say is, you know, that there's even there he's come right the way through the ranks, achieved everything he's achieved, but now he's he's this sort of commodity in some sort of game around FFP. There's the yeah. you you raising up there the that that basically. 
there's football bodies are trying to put structures in place. There's the there's the new academization rules, and that what it leads to is it leads to clubs cynically acting as as, as corporations often do within the within the rules, but simultaneously pushing the rules to their absolute limit and within their own interests. And what that's done is that in many senses that's deepened the cynicism around to use your words, treating these young men uh, and young boys going right the way down to the age of six to nine, especially as pieces of meat, that no one wants to lose out on one, that the risk reward becomes all over the place. And that that's just increasingly sort of deepening the dehumanization towards these young men. Uh, Absolutely. We have a situation where, you know, boys are, um, if if you take as an example, um, Gareth Southgate, who uh, I think comes across very, very well in the book. Yeah. Now, he says, look, I can't tell you whether a kid in our England under-16 team is going to make a, a career in the game. So how on earth can you, you say, and people tell me, but you can say, oh, yeah, so little Johnny's going to be a, a pro at, uh, when he's six years old. You can tell that. It's nonsense. But what is happening, and you, you, you hit the nail on the head then, Neil, is that they're... Football is driven by fear and insecurity. And the whole system, the numbers game, the trawling of, 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 of kids, the stacking of kids by the, by the bigger clubs, all that goes down back to the fact that no one wants to be the man who fails to find the Beatles, yep. in, you know, in, in football terms. You know, they don't want to miss out on the chosen one. They don't want to miss out on a Steven Gerrard or wherever, whoever. Now... Because of that, corners are cut, and there has, there's a black economy built up around that. Um, you have, you know, it's under-regulated, so you have uh, agents. Uh, you know, in essence, surprise, surprise, FIFA has sold shirts yet again. They decided that agents was too hard, uh, too hard an area to govern. So they then passed the buck to the FAs, but basically said, well, look, I know we used to have this system whereby we had the exams, and uh, now you or I, Neil, can pay 500 quid and we're agents tomorrow. Now, you see them all around the place. The the local term for them is plant pots, and they're the ones just pestering kids and their parents on touchlines. I've seen complicit parents smuggle these guys into training grounds, I've seen these guys offer cinema tickets to boys as, as, as little tokens of favour. Now, I'm sorry, but in any, that is groomed by any other name. And that is wrong. I've got some sympathy. I think the, the Premier League's um, elite performance plan, the strategy, I think is desperately flawed. Uh, um, you know, huge amounts of money have been spent on it already, 400 million out of the 400 million coming in. Something like Steve Pyle will say, you know, look, just let them play. Yeah. Put two jumpers down as goalposts. And then that creates a natural football, and now it's all robotic. And, you know, you get the ball, you receive it on half term, give, pass, receive, the whole thing is most prescriptive. Uh, so that's playing point of view is having a bad effect. But what is, what's it having on, a, on just a basic human level? What we've got is football is notorious for abusing the power of opportunity. And if you've got... Uh, I'll give you a good example of this, which was actually given to me um, by someone who actually um, you know, 
did what many people thought was a terrible thing. A guy called Phil Giles, who's the co-director of football at Brentford, he closed his academy and uh, was done horrendously badly. Uh, you had under-18s being paraded around uh, Griffin Park with the full knowledge of the club that the contracts that these boys had just signed were worthless because they were going to close it down. But he, he's, he's come into it from you know, a different world, of, you know, an analytic world, and he made the point, which I think is a really important point. Look, imagine the moral outcry if the banks started recruiting boys as young as nine training them up, you know, doing foreign exchange or whatever it is, and then trading them between each other before adolescence hit. Now, that's the reality of youth football today. And where, where we are with it is that I think there's no, there's no education process for the parents. They need help. And I think excesses that, that are excused simply because of football's prominence and celebrity say as much about us as, as parents or participants or supporters or media observers as they do about the game itself. And, you know, I think just things have to change. Um, you know, cherish that dream and celebrate achievement because it is a heck of an achievement to, to actually, you know, make it through the mill, as it were. But let's protect the innocent. And I don't know whether that's been done at the moment. Okay, uh, I think you've got a flavour of the book there. Let's. I want to just. Uh, I'll talk for a minute because Mike, Mike's far too modest. Um, it is off the back of uh, the, the Nowhere Men, uh, followed by Proud, followed by Living on the Volcano, and I know he worked with uh, Joey Barton as, as as a co-writer. He prefers to refer to it as on no nonsense. Uh, he is probably uh, the UK's most accomplished writer about football in the general sense in the country at the moment. Don't interrupt Mike and don't tell me there's someone else uh, yeah. in this in the sense of dealing with uh, long-form novels, sorry, long-form books such as this one. Can't recommend it highly enough. Um, it is, you know, for those of us who are interested in the game wider, as I'd like to think a lot of the people who listen to the Anfield rap wider than just our clubs but about sort of the game in, in terms of what it actually does to people and how we communicate within that um, is another great example of, of his work so it's available now it's out now it's called No Hunger in Paradise uh, Michael Calvin it really is groundbreaking excellent truly tremendous stuff I'd like to thank him for coming on the Anfield rap we'll hopefully speak to him further about it in the next uh, few weeks and months but that's the Anfield rap this week on Radio City Talk thank you very much to everyone who's contributed and uh, people who've taken the time to write these wonderful books about football. We'll be back with more of this sort of stuff next week. Sports Social Podcast Network.